Well, good morning. Welcome. Here we are. All right, I'm going to invite you to just continue to settle in. Nothing to do, nowhere to go for a little bit. I'm going to sound our gong here since I get the gong sounder detached. There we go. And invite you to just join us in 30 seconds of silence, and then I will share a prayer, sing a song, and share a prayer. And uh, please feel free to participate at whatever level serves you best. In this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world. And in this very room, there's quite enough joy for all the world. And there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear for spirit one spirit is in this very room in this very room in this very room And so know with me in this moment as I stand with you in the invitation and in the collaboration that allowing my words to be your words. And if they don't fit, let them wash over you. But let us know that there's a, that there's a collective consciousness here now that is amplified because there are many. And so I just give thanks in knowing and recognizing in the first person that there's one life, one power, one infinite divine activity. That principle of life, that energetic, that vibration of the Most High is who and what I am. And so I'm so grateful to be reminded of that, that I have stepped off the path into the sacred space of being. I know that I'm guided and directed that there's a conversation at the deep level of my soul that is informing, guiding, nurturing, inspiring, and allowing me to live in the uncertainty and the mystery at times as I am being repotted into a new consciousness of fertile ground. So I give thanks this day for all that has passed, all that is, and all that is yet to be revealed, for the greater yet to be. For this I give thanks and invite you to stay with me. And so it is. All right, so I'm going to invite you all to stand up and find a partner to interact with in a meaningful way, as we have done in the past. Come on, Linda. Oh, you've got somebody. Charles. Will you be my partner? Charles is going to come up and be my partner. So I'm going to invite you to look that person in the eyes and say, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being alive on the planet. Thank you for being alive on the planet. You have gifts to share. You have gifts to share. You have love to share. You have love to share. You have power to reveal. You have power to reveal. And you have potential to fulfill. And you have potential to fulfill. Let's make this world a better place. Let's make this world a better place. And so it is. Thank you. Thank you. Blessings. All right.
So we've done the two or more. And so as you see behind me here, the vision, a world that works for everyone, awakening humanity to its spiritual magnificence and to teach and, to teach and live love. And those are, those are big ideas, but they're, they're concepts that, that keep drawing us forward or drafting us forward. And perhaps they'll never be realized, but it's something that's worthy of standing, taking a stand together. So today we want to honor our students. We are a community of lifelong learners, and going into September, we're going to be talking about discovery and dreams and what, is, what launches us and what's meaningful for us. But today we have a number of people that have, have taken classes. And so I'm going to invite um, my wife, Laura, and Sue Edwards to come forward, who are very involved with our educational program. We're going we're gonna to read names, and uh, not everyone's here today, but when you come up, I'm going to read the names, and, and you'll come up to receive your certificate. Uh, we ask you to stay here, and then at the end, we're going to applaud, uh, applaud them all and give them a, um, an offering of our heartfelt love and appreciation for their continued lifelong learning, because we're, there's only one of us, and whenever somebody's doing the work, we're, they're doing the work for us as well, and so it's such a, a beautiful thing. So we thank you so much for your devotion and commitment to yourself, which is really a devotion and commitment to the totality. All right, so this class was taught by Reverend Tammy Banting. I'm going to go through the list here, and, and Reverend Tammy <clears throat> is not here with us this morning, but she's here with us in spirit and love. This was our foundations class, it was term one, and this class is starting again, so if you're interested, you can find out more in, the, in your bulletins or, or also at the table in the back after service. And the members of that class, I will read them as you hear your names, please just come on up, and as I said, please stay here so we can honor and applaud you. Uh, so this class begins with uh, Charles Beguine, Muriel Cherry, Noreen Crone Finley, Noreen was here earlier, but must have had to go. Uh, Jim Finley, partners with Noreen. So if she left, he probably left too, came in one car. That's how quick I am. Marla Frazier, Darren Kemp. Darren was here early too, he took off. Elizabeth MacArthur, Alexis Soleil, Crystal Schlater, and Cameron Schultz. Crystal's here, awesome. All right, Prosperity Plus One was taught by Stacy Berger, and Stacy's traveling right now as well. And the members of that class, once again, Charles Beguine, who's already up here. Miles Bishop, Saskia Brumwell Blessing, who's actually in Kenya working with uh, uh, orphans right now with Reverend Connie Phelps, and a member of our, our youth representative on our board of trustees. Toby Connors, Christine Frazier, Lisa Hart, I know Lisa's here, Tanya Kemp, Vanessa Keenan, Karen Quigley, Karen Stay, she did our early meditation, did a beautiful job. Barbara Schaefer, Belinda Schmidt, Karen Tanner, oh, Karen took off too, she was here early, and Michelle Valencia. All right. Here's Karen. There's Karen, she's still here. All right. So now Winter Prosperity Plus, also taught by Stacy Berger. Carolyn Collins, Audrey Bessie, Charles Beguine, of course, he's in every class. Uh, Christine Frazier, and he actually taught a class for us this year too. Don Michaels, Don Southey Hills, Karen Quigley, Tanya Kemp, and Trevor Norum. Well, we honor, and wherever they are, we honor and love them. Winner Self Mastery, which was taught by Reverend Tammy Banting and myself. Christina Gillette, Elena Brooks, James Dodd, 
Noreen Crone Finley, Jim Finley, Julia Morris, Mark Coleman, and Mark Glennon. Here comes Mark. Awesome. Mark helped me put, put up and take down the scaffold this uh, week, so thank you again. We were working on the projector. <clears throat> and if you were here for the first service, you know we failed at that, but we were working on it. The Spring Foundations class taught by Laura Cameron, uh, David Brooks, Deborah Shabalo, Faith Monkman, Joshua Ray Cote, Kate Herity, Catherine Bissett, and Lynn Knox. And I just saw Catherine come in. There she is. All right. And so spring 2016, Essential Ernest Holmes, which I taught. Donna Fuchman, Elena Brooks, Jeff Deneve, Noreen Crone Finley and Jim Finley, of course. Lorna Skelton and Tanya Kemp. So those are our, our, our representative of our classes. But as you can see from the names read, there were many, many people that participated in classes. We also had, before we, we uh, share our love with these folks, eight life skill classes attended by 78 students. Living My Life Purpose, Meditation with the Masters, Heart Math, which uh, Luis uh, taught. He's in the back there. Luis, thank you so much for that. Beyond Affirmation and Positive Thinking, E Squared, uh, SQ21, Meditation for Kids and Teens, and, and Charles Beguin taught Money Metamorphosis, and he did that uh, as a love offering to us. So thank you, Charles, for being so much part of our education program this last that's last year. So with all that said, let's give these folks a round of applause. Okay. All right, so today I want to share with you going into kind of this idea of learning and the process. The title of the talk is Being Wrong, because that's such a popular idea, such an inspiration, being wrong. How does it feel? So the ideas around that are being experts at wrong. Wrong is central to lifelong learning, and when wrong is right. So if you hang in there with me, I think I can shed some light on that. So experts at wrong. I've got a slide that I want to share with you that's uh, faded out there, but a little bit uh, brighter um, to see in the next slide. And this is a, a picture of an, of an aviator right there. Anybody know who that is? And if you're here for the first uh, service, you don't get to share. I mean, don't run it. Orville Wright? That was what they said at the first uh, one. Who? Charles Lindbergh. Wow. That is, this guy here is Wrongway Corrigan. Ever heard of Wrongway Corrigan? So he was one of the mechanics on the Charles Lindbergh flight, when Lindbergh flew from New York to uh, France. And he was one of the mechanics that helped put the plane together. So he was a self-taught mechanic. He started as a young boy, and he was fascinated by aviation. And so he decided that he wanted to fly from New York to, to Europe. And they said, sorry, you can't do it. We're not going to let you. You do not have our approval. And he said, oh, okay. So he flew his plane, and he put together his plane. Um, got a little bit of a... He says, um, so what happened, before I read this, because I want to build the suspense, but he, he got to New York City and he said, well, then I'm going to fly to Long Beach, California. And he put enough gasoline on the plane uh, to, to do that flight. And so he said to the guy that was running the airport, uh, which way should I take off? And of course, he said, well, whatever you do, take off in any direction but, but west because, you know, it's, it's conducive to fly into the wind when you're taking off. 
So he took off east, and uh, he never turned around. With the flight path uh, agreed to that he would fly to Long Beach, and he flew all the way to Dublin, Ireland. Now, throughout his whole life, he never admitted that he flew there intentionally. He simply said it was heavy cloud cover, and he got lost along the way. <laughs> but the interesting thing about it was that um, he, de- he was denied permission, a, a nonstop flight New York to Ireland. He said it was a navigational error, but it was also seen as deliberate. deliberate. Nevertheless, he never publicly admitted to having flown to Ireland intentionally. He landed at the Baldonnell Aerodrome, County Dublin, on July 18th after a 28-hour and 13-minute flight. The provisions that he took with him were two chocolate bars, two boxes of fig bars, and 25 gallons of water. He said, you could say the Corrigan's flight, it was written about him in Wikipedia, you could say the Corrigan's flight could not be compared to Lindbergh's in its sensational appeal as the first solo flight across the ocean. Yes, but in another way, the obscure little Irishman's flight was more audacious of the two. Lindbergh had a plane specially constructed, the finest money could buy. He had lavish financial backing, friends to help him at every turn. Corrigan had nothing but his own ambition, courage, and ability. His plane, a nine-year-old Curtis Robin, was the most wretched-looking jalopy. In fact, when he got back to California with it, they grounded it for six months because they said it wasn't airworthy. He said, as I looked over it at... Over it at the Dublin Aerodrome, I really marveled that anyone should have been rash enough to go in the air with it, much less fly fly the Atlantic. He built it or rebuilt it practically as a boy would build a scooter out of a soapbox and a pair of old roller skates, and it looked like it. The nose of the engine hood was a mass of patched soldering by Corrigan himself into a crazy quilt design. The door behind which Corrigan crouched for 28 hours was fastened together with a piece of bailing wire. The reserve gas tank put together by Corrigan left him so little room that he had to sit hunched forward with his knees cramped and not enough window space to see the ground when landing. So needless to say, he was very determined to make this flight, and he didn't have any of the resources that Lindbergh had. In fact, on the flight, he developed a fuel leak, and uh, so as the cockpit was filling up with gasoline, he pulled out a screwdriver and punched a hole in the floor on the opposite side of where the hot muffler was so that he wouldn't explode in the air, but he could drain some of the gasoline that was spilling out. So quite an interesting character. But I think in, in, in celebrating this idea of wrong today, that I think wrong, wrong way Corrigan's spirit is with us today, if you know what I mean. And what an example of of possibility. The next slide I want to share with you are people that are, are looking at a map and why this is near and dear to me is that every time I go somewhere with my beloved partner Laura, we spend a lot of our time discussing directions and looking at maps. And so, and it's always very interesting how certain we can be about the right direction to go when many times we go that direction and find, hey, we're wrong. Guess what? So I just, I love that slide and I, I have great appreciation for it. One of the stories around this and this idea of our mindsets, because we are experts at wrong. You know, I think it was Shakespeare said, to err is human. Maybe not, maybe it was somebody else, but I know that's a phrase that many people say, to err is is human. But but anybody here been wrong besides me? Yeah, like there's a half a dozen people here that have been wrong as well. But what is it about us that that we just got to be certain? We just got to know. We got to be the expert. We got to be right. You know, there's something, what is it, the wiring in us that we got to be right? Because I know, I mean, you look at it, look at religion, ah, you know, I mean, here, there, this this group is right, only one's going to heaven. And as I've always said, if you guys are the only ones going, I'm not going there, you're no fun. 
But anyway, so 13-year-old boy is at his home in 1941, and he's listening to a baseball game. And all of a sudden, the um, announcer comes on and announces that Pearl Harbor has been bombed. And so this is a flashbolt moment. Those are the times when things happen. I remember where I was standing when the Twin Towers were flown into. I remember the morning. I remember um, Laura was getting ready to leave for work with the boys, or to school with the boys, and I was there working. And um, I remember that morning. I remember when John Kennedy was assassinated, when the teacher came in and told us that, where I was sitting in the classroom and all that. So, so those are flashbulb moments. So this young boy, his name was Ulrich Neiser. And so he told the story for... A, years and years about how as a young boy he was listening to the baseball game and he was interrupted by the bombing of Pearl Harbor by the Japanese. And then he realized as he got older, wait a minute, he said, there's no way I could have been listening to a baseball game because the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor December 7th. And they don't play baseball in December. That's hockey season as we all know here in the Great White North. So he realized that he was certain that he was listening to a baseball game. And he, so he started studying that. So Ulrich grew up to be a psychologist, and he majored in studying these flashbulb moments where people have this experience and then they are convinced that this is how it went. So what he did is um, when the Challenger exploded, remember the Challenger 1986, they sent a bunch of civilians up, there were school teachers on there, men and women of different careers, and they were on the Challenger and it got up almost into orbit and then it exploded and they all were killed. So what he, had to, what he wanted to do was take advantage of this crisis and this, this terrible thing that happened, but he wanted to see how people process this. So he had 106 people write down their experience. He asked them to write out exactly uh, what they'd heard about the explosion, where they were, were at the time, who they were with, and what they had been doing, and how they felt about it. So he, he had them record it when it was fresh. And so they wrote it down, and then two and a half years later, he went back to those people and said, I want you to write about it again, and, and let me know. your experience at this point in time. So once again, the same questions, the same approach. 7%, two and a half years later, 7% of the 106 matched what they wrote originally. 50% of them had two-thirds of all of the major incidents completely wrong. 24% were wrong in every major detail. Had none of it right in two and a half years. And the same thing, the same statistics apply with September 11th, and so isn't it interesting that, and, and yet they were certain they were accurate. They were convinced they were accurate. And isn't it fascinating how the mind works and how as time goes, you know, you, you know the thing where I tell someone up here a secret and we go around to the end and we, we get to hear what's at the end and I, don't, I think that'd be terribly distracting on a Sunday. But, you know, if you've been part of that, that experience, you realize that the story at the end typically does not match the story that began at the beginning. And so, fascinating how our minds shift and change things. I've been at family functions where I, when I was a boy, I witnessed something, and then a, the story was being told 20 years later, and it's like, I don't remember that, you know? I mean, how many of us have had that experience? There's an example, another example of this, at, at Boston Beth Israel Deacon Medical Center, uh, there was a true story. A woman went in for surgery to have a procedure done on her knee. Came out of surgery after the anesthesia wore off, and she looked down and she said, why is my right leg wrapped? And, my, and nothing's happened on my left leg at all when I came in to have my left leg operated on, my left knee. 
And so they went and they, they investigated and found out that as the medical uh, lead in that particular world-class facility said, for whatever reason, the surgeon felt he was on the right side of the patient. For whatever reason, that was their official explanation. That surgeon felt that they, he was on the right side of the patient. I'm sure there were probably lawyers got involved with this as well. But isn't it interesting many times how people can have this sense that of, because they, they're, they're sure and they're certain and they're accurate that this is right. And, and, and so we talk about the intuitive knowing and living intuitively as well as intellectually and all that balancing. But when um, sometimes trusting too much in the feeling on being on the correct side can be really dangerous. And so I think it's in ways spiritually it applies to us as well. We look at traditions, we look at various different ways of living and being on the planet and many people would say their way is the only way and their way is the right way. But as we move along in this science, and one of the things I loved about Dr. Ernest Holmes is he looked at all of the different traditions. He looked at the Buddhists. You know, we have all these banners up. You know, we, they represent the Hindu tradition and the Buddhist tradition and, the, and, and many of the, the great traditions of the world as, as well as the inherent sort of indigenous traditions but, or life wisdom. But they're in constant evolution. What we know now perhaps is just at the level of our consciousness of what we can comprehend. But things are shifting and changing all the time. And if we continue to use spiritual practices that I think help us uncover the next greater yet to be, the greater knowing or the, the next knowing for ourselves, it's quite powerful and quite, and quite dramatic. But if we're always in certitude, I got this figured out, this is my way, that I'm the right group, I'm the right political party, I'm the right whatever it may be, we shut all that down. So how do you live in it? How do you not become like blown by every wind that comes along without slipping into, well, I'm just certain this is what it is and shutting things down? So it's living, part, it's living in the mystery. It's, it's understanding. It doesn't mean we don't take a stand and that we can choose wisely, we can discern wisely, but to step into judgment because judgment always leads us to certainty and accuracy. So too much trusting in the feeling of being on the correct side can be really dangerous. So the second idea I want to share with you is wrong is central to lifelong learning. Wrong is part of it. The only way that we, we make decisions and, and, and move forward effectively is by doing something. If we always wait until it's perfect and right and then never make a decision, nothing happens. And that's, quite honestly, that's just boring. So it's important for us to take the principles that we apply here and the principles in our lives and the, and the, the learning that we have out in the world and attempting new things, entertaining new ideas and new possibilities. So the internal feeling of, of right is not foolproof. Just because you think it's right, it's not foolproof. Just because I think it's right, it's not foolproof. Many times we can't trust the internal feelings of rightness. So there's a picture of, uh, um, oh, we're already all the way up there. Okay, good. Yep. The pessimi- there's a thing called the pessimistic me- media indica- meta indicator from the history of science. And what we can learn from this, and what we know from this, and it's, this is recorded, every major scientific theory that appeared bulletproof, that we knew. At one time, the world was flat. At one time, the earth was the center of the universe. Anybody ever read any of that stuff? But that was the, that was the agreement. All of these things. But every major scientific theory that appeared bulletproof, this is it, we figured it out, no more to know, have all been proven wrong, every one of them. 
But that's not a bad thing. Because as science changes and as, as technology changes and the consciousness changes, we come to these greater and greater awarenesses. Someone once shared to me, which I never considered in my life, and I think it's something that I, I think about all the time. We, we think in this planet, many people worship and love Jesus. And if you love Jesus, you go through Jesus to get to God for, for many traditions. And I don't have a problem with that because for me, I would agree with that. But my going through Jesus means something different to me. It is that the, the Apostle Paul wrote, let the mind that was in Jesus be in you. I would agree with that. But everybody filters that differently. I mean, there are, many as, there are as many versions of Christianity on this planet as there are Christians, in my opinion. Just ask the Christian. And there's nothing wrong with that. But, but when we fall into the trap for any of us, I mean, we have fundamental, radical, uh, metaphysician, re- religious scientists. And I get it too. Not my job to wrestle that away. I'm, I, got, I got my hands full of my own consciousness. So this pessimistic meta-induction from the history of science... Every scientific theory appeared bulletproof wrong. But that's the nature of it. Because science is always unfolding, always revealing new things. So I have a story I want to read with you, I want to share. That I want to read you a paragraph and tell me what you think. And I had it here all lined up, and now I've very... There it is. And if you know the answer to this, just hold it to yourself for a moment. But the mind always wants to understand. So I'll share you this paragraph with you. And without one piece, it can be a bit puzzling. But it begins like this. A newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is better than a street. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it is easy to learn. Every young child can enjoy it. Once successful, complications are minimal. Birds seldom get too close. Rain, however, soaks it very fast. Too many people doing the same thing can cause a problem. One needs uh, needs lots of room. If there are no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock will serve as an anchor. If things break loose from it, however, you will not get a second chance. So do you know what we're referring to? We're referring to a kite. See, if you know it's a kite, it makes sense, right? But our minds want to put it in a context so we can understand it. Because to read that standalone without the idea of what a kite offers us and what the opportunities are, it's a bit troubling. It's like, what, what is he talking about? A newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is better than a street. At first, it's better to run than to walk. It is with a kite. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Every young child can enjoy it. Once successful, complications are minimal. Birds seldom get too close. Rain, however, soaks it very fast, etc., etc., etc. But isn't it interesting how our minds want to put it in a context that makes some sense? So I would say that the pessimistic indicator from the history of science could also be called the optimistic meta-indicator from the history of everything. Because what's true about that, every theory we have about, about spirituality, about religion, over time as consciousness changes, it shifts. And so what we, our opportunities now, as Dr. Holmes was said one time when uh, one of the students came up to him in the 50s and said, oh, I just love your science of mind textbook. He says, oh, that old, that old thing, that's probably outdated by now. But because he, he understood the other, he wasn't critical of what he put down, but he had changed and grown as well, his deep understanding. You know, this idea that is, I, uh, I think I just shared with you about this idea. Someone shared that, you know, at the, at the quantum level, there are thousands of Jesuses. Isn't that interesting, remarkable? But why not? Why not? I'm like, wow, I never thought of that. We always think of the one, the one son of God. But if you realize that we're all the sons and daughters of God, 
It kind of blows the lid off that. But if I, for me to go out and say that in, in, in different arenas would be blasphemy. You know, we don't, we're, we're, are we Christian? We're Christian and more, as Dr. Holmes said. We just don't teach Christian theology. And we don't. But we talk about this idea that what was available in and through the experience of this man, this Nazarene, he wasn't called the Christ until the fourth century. He was just Jesus of Nazareth. He was a, he was a traveling rabbi. He was an itinerant minister that went and talked wherever he could. But it's interesting now, you know, he's the anointed one. Christ means the anointed one. And that's a beautiful thing. Are we anointed? And the opportunity is for us to be anointed. And I think that that journey is assured. I just think it's a matter, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So trusting too much in the feeling of being correct can be really dangerous. So our minds, but our minds want to know. So when right is wrong, when wrong is right, the last idea I want to share with you, when wrong is right, wrong is only bad when what happens, we, we use what happened to us to decide we're wrong. Everybody makes mistakes. And then when we use that to determine going forward for ourselves or for others, all we do is shut it down. I'm certain I'm wrong, so I'm never going to do anything. But wrong is only bad when we identify as us being wrong because we have erred. I had a, someone last week called me and said, I love Patrick Harbula's talk because he talked about um, uh, the old way of metaphysics, which was that, you know, if you got sick, used to, the joke used to be, it's okay to, to die, but don't get sick in our teaching. Because your metaphysical friends would come up to you and say, what's in your consciousness? Ah, which is just, you might as well just say, well, there's something wrong with you. And, and really, it's, and so that, that idea and that mindset became a weapon in a sense. So it was no longer, you know, when, when I would hear that, it was no longer that, you know, you're being punished for, for your sins because you're a bad person and God is smiting you and hurting you because you deserve that, you dirty, rotten louse. Instead, what the metaphysicians would say is, well, what's in your consciousness? And then you get to spin and, well, there must be something wrong with me. When in fact, wrong's part of life. It's how we figure things out. And it's the energy we give to wrong. Go, wow, I tried that. That didn't work. I'm not going that direction anymore. I used to think about life this way. I used to approach my work this way. I used to approach relationships this way. I mean, how many of us here have been in a relationship prior to the one that we're currently in? Anybody besides me? Yeah, there's a couple of us. So the point being is, but that relationship was necessary to get me to here. That, that experience with lack and limitation was required in my life. I asked Charles, can you teach something around financial stewardship? And he, he came up with this, this brilliant man came up with this beautiful program because some people don't know how to balance their checkbooks. You know, we're teaching uh, metaphysical principles through the Prosperity, uh, um, Prosperity Plus, and yet there are people that are, have no, don't have any idea how much money they have. And so the idea is, with all of it, is if you don't know where you're starting, it's really hard to know where you're going. I mean, part of stewardship might be you just start paying your bills on time. Wow. And celebrate the bills coming in. Look at this. I got another bill I get to pay. This is fantastic. Why is it fantastic? Because I have enough to pay it, and I'm going to pay it on time and right now. Start there and build that. That's an energetic around that. Bring it on. I don't care how many bills come in. I got more than enough to pay these, and then I got some money to start saving. That's how you build it. I mean, you can win the lottery, you could. And what are the odds on that? As Esther Hicks always said, what are the odds? I don't know, a billion to one? Okay, well, that might happen. 
but it might not. So in the meantime, why don't you have practices in your life that bring you from this where you are now to where you want to be? And that takes time. It takes time to unravel all that. It takes time to, to look at it and make a correct diagnosis. So when we get sick, it's not about, oh, I did something wrong and this arbitrary God is punishing me. No, there's something alive in my consciousness that is, that is and this, this physical discomfort is modeling that and guiding me. So I haven't done anything wrong. I'm not wrong. I'm the eternal presence of the one. I am the beloved whom the Father is well pleased. And so I'm having an experience right now with my physical health. This isn't a problem. This isn't wrong. This is opportunity to look deeply and say, how did I participate in this? Because I don't want to participate in it. Because Holmes said the power that binds us is the same power that can free us. How can I think differently about this and approach this and energetically embody something new? But that's wisdom and it takes time and it's hard. It's much, much easier to blame conditions than to blame circumstances. And to say, well, I have this because so-and-so did this and because there's this chemical in the water and because there's this and that. And I'm not saying that stuff isn't going on. But if you, just, if you and I just stand around looking for people and things to blame, we're never going to move forward. It's hopeless. It's over. And people have felt that for ages. I'm not joining that club. I'm going to, you know what, I think we should have t-shirts on sale here for, of Wrong Way Corrigan. Just big picture Wrong Way there on. And talk about the blessings of wrong. When wrong is right. Because if you hate being wrong, you fail to realize that in order to get to your goal or your experience that wrong is one of the guys that will get you there. Wrong is one of the guys that will get you there. Richard Rorty said, not Richard Rohr, Richard Rorty said, to accept our own fallibility is to embrace the permanent possibility of somebody having a better idea. So what does wrong tell us? We need one another. We need people. We need differing opinions. We need the debate because that's what happens. That's why they have co-pilots. That's why they have co-pilots on planes. So there's one guy up there. Laura and I took a little puddle jumper. It was like six seats from Albany, New York to Toronto. We were coming out of the Omega Institute. It was this tiny little plane. And there were two pilots. In fact, the pilot... <laughs> and there was this little plastic uh, accordion door between the pilots and the seats in the back. I mean, these guys were sitting on these, these seats in the front. Their knees were on their chins. And they're flying the... You know, their knees are up on their ears. And it's flying away. And we watched because the little accordion door, because the vibration of the plane shook so bad, we kept opening. And you'd look in there and say, oh, this is what they're doing. That co-pilot was doing math the whole time. Calculations, calculation. He had a little whiteboard. He'd go, okay, da, 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 and he'd tell the other guy what to adjust, the other guy to adjust, and then he'd wipe the board off and he'd give him a new coordinate. And whole way there, I'm like, man, these guys are working their tails off in there. I, had, you know, I made up a story. I think, well, you turn on autopilot and take a snooze and <laughs> make sure the alarm's on and wake up so we can land properly. You. That's why I have co-pilots. That's why we have engineers. That's why we have checks and balances. That's why we have a board of trustees here. So you have good practices. We, we do an audit and we do um, reviews with our finances here, which is just good stewardship. So you know that you, the, where your money's going is being used appropriately or where we are. It's checks and balances. And the auditor comes in and makes recommendations because they can see it with objective eyes. It's really healthy to do that. And it protects everyone. Because, you know, it takes some of the mystery out of it and the worry. We have really, really good records. I was approached by a church a number of years ago to, to, to move there. I said, hey, it looks like you're doing pretty good in Edmonton, and we're wondering if you'd like to move here. And, and so, I, you know, you're curious, and you're, they're, they're, they're courting you. It's always nice to be wanted, isn't it? So I just said, the first question, I said, well, what's your budget? I said, budget? We don't have a budget. And that was enough for me to know. I said, oh, okay, they don't do finances there. I do finances. 
How do you, how do you pay bills when you don't know what you have? Well, you know, just, okay. Well, I wasn't interested in that. I just thought, boy, that's, that's some work for, that's some heavy lifting for somebody to go do. And I, went out to, I didn't want to move anyway. I wasn't looking. But the point is, is that if we don't know where we are and we don't make the correct diagnosis and start to move in the right direction, how, how can we be successful? So if we have an illness in our lives, what does it represent for us? And if we do the inquiry and ask ourselves, we can go about the business of shifting and changing the consciousness that's participating in that. And it ain't easy. There's a guy by the name of Dan Barker. And Dan is a, was a fundamental Christian minister. He said, I was on the far right, as far on the right as I could possibly be. And he was also a musician and very creative. And he wrote these musicals for these young children around scripture. And Dan's position was that the story of Adam and Eve is a literal interpretation. And he wrote musicals about it. He wrote the first one for kids called... Uh, um, I'll think of it. White is... Uh, yeah, based on Mary Adela, uh, uh Fleece is white as snow. That was the first one he wrote. Anyway, so he started going to these other churches, traveling around, he and his wife and his kids. And he said, we never had enough money. We always prayed that the love offering would be enough to get us to the next church. That's how they lived. They lived hand to mouth doing this. This was their ministry for years. But he said he started going into these more moderate Christian denominations. And the, and the minister would say to him, look, we don't interpret Scripture literally. He said, I do. You know, I'm the minister. But I have congregants that say that, well, maybe Adam and Eve was not uh, a literal story. Maybe it's not factual. Maybe it's metaphor. And he was appalled. He was just appalled. He said, how can these people believe this? I don't even know if I can come and share my music with them. These heathens. This is blasphemy. And so he realized over time, as he interacted with these people, and realized that they weren't the devil incarnate because they didn't believe exactly what he believed, that, that maybe it was, he said, it took me years, maybe it was metaphor, maybe it was a story of truth wrapped around this idea of a man and a woman and being thrown out of the garden because they made a mistake. Not because they were wrong themselves, but they made a decision which put them into this sense of not knowing which was an example of, I think, anyone that was thinking at the time, why are we doing this? Why are we born into this? And all this mystery and struggle and pain and suffering and joy and sorrow, what is all of this about? So it was a story to help explain some of that. So then he realized, well, maybe the story of Jesus is metaphor. So what Dan Barker does now, along with Christopher Hitchens, they partnered up and wrote a book. I just bought the book. I'm going to read it. But now he's the, the, one of the number one proponent, proponents of atheism on the planet. So he's going all the way from over here to all the way over there. But he talks about the certainty of what he was over here. He just knew everything was literal. So now it's like, wait a minute, there might not even be a God as I interpret it. Well, isn't that interesting? Because that is the evolution. Because so many people see God as a personality, as a man on a cloud with a beard. It's a principle, it's a vibration. That was the genius of Holmes and all the great metaphysical teachers. Yogananda said it. Yogananda said it, that we are light, we are light. He understood, he, had the, he was a mystic. Beautiful, beautiful man. So our weekly practice around all this, because we're experts at wrong, we get wrong is central to lifelong learning. And when wrong is right, we made a mistake, but that's just part of the journey, it's not that we're wrong. And so the, the practice that I would recommend that you use this week is curiosity. Curiosity is such a powerful practice. 
Curiosity to ask the questions when we find ourselves stepping into the, off the path again. Why am I doing this? What is triggering me? Why do I feel like I'm, there's something wrong with me or broken in me? Where did that come from? Who gave me that? And to track that down and say, you know what? I'm going to dissolve that. I'm not going to live from that anymore. That's just a waste of my energy. Yeah, I get it. I can do better. Of course, we all can. But, all, you know, but we, we'll, we'll be wrong or we'll make a mistake and then we come up with a whole story of why we're stuck there. So I have a slide here of the, the slide. So the great thing about it, there's a, you know, there's a guy with a magnifying glass checking out a frog. Aren't kids great to model this? I mean, why is a frog green? I don't know. I think it probably was natural selection. Maybe there were red frogs at one time. Maybe there were purple frogs at one time. But they didn't blend in well. So they all got you know, natural selection, right? They all got eaten. Or then there it is. I got a little toddler like that that's learning how to walk. But I mean, a discovery a kid makes, picking up the rock. Be like little children. I mean, that's a big discovery when you're, you're 13 months old. But the curiosity, be like little children. Why do I keep doing this and do I have to keep doing this? Is this something that my parents gave me? Or not? And the last one here, I love this one. We need each other. We need one another. When we have co-pilots, when we have prayer partners, when we have mentors in our lives and teachers in our lives, we're better off. Because it's really easy to spin in our old story. And that's, that's a great activity, and many people do it. Those hats say, thinker, thinking cap, and the guy on the right says, idea meter. Dr. Holmes said, to learn how to think is to learn how to live. And that's ongoing for all of us. And it's okay if we've made mistakes. It's okay if we've bought, a, bought into the wrong ideas and the wrong, because those things were necessary. Those were important and necessary. It doesn't mean we're stuck. We're on the path where we're, who knows what spirituality is going to look like in another hundred years. At that quantum field of possibility. And to be open to that, but to stay stuck in, in, in the status quo of maintaining what is. You know, I think that what's happening politically in the United States is, is, is necessary, as Holmes would say, it's necessary for the greater yet to be to be revealed. I trust in that. If you look at where we are and where people are, and, and a lot of people are screaming and hollering because they want it to go back to what was, because that's what they know. I get that. And so how do, we as, how do we as awake and compassionate and aware individuals watch that, witness it, understand it with wisdom, and just realize, well, yeah, I get, you. I get that, you're scared. Because being, being afraid is very popular. But not joining him in that energetically, going, yeah, you're afraid. It's just like having a kid. Kids get scared. We all get scared at times. But to have the awareness and the ability to say, eh, what am I afraid of here? Well, maybe not. Maybe it's going to work out. And so it's just a, it's a beautiful, beautiful um, philosophy that we have. And, it's, and there's nowhere in our philosophy, Dr. Holmes is always emphasizing good is always the enemy of the great. Good is always the enemy of the great. You know, I want to share with you, we, we started this GoFundMe. We've got a lot of stuff happening financially within the community. We've leveraged some, some uh, income, so we, we, have, we have a lot of repairs to do, and we're going to get them done this year. And so I wanted to just share this with you as an idea of the greater yet to be, an opportunity. We got, received some grant money, and the grant money is for our office site. It's not for here because uh, religious societies and communities are not allowed to uh, access um, uh, provincial funds or federal funds for grants. 
But our offices need roofs, they need furnaces, uh, windows. We need a, a roof here. The roof here is about $100,000. We're going to insulate it, and we're going to do it properly, and then we're going to put the new shingles on. But part of, the, part of the plan is to see if we can leverage and match the grant money. We received a grant for $25,200 from the, the province. And in order to um, act upon that, we have to match the funds. So we thought we would invite people to participate in that. So we have 26 people so far that have contributed $5,225, which is awesome. We thank you, and some of you are sitting here right now, and I thank you so much. And so our goal by the end of this month, by the end of September, is to get to the 25200 And so it's a way for us to participate. This is about 20% of all the repairs that we're going to do because we're going to do about $150,000 to $170,000 in repairs this year just to get this place where it's raining inside every time it rains now. Um, and uh, get it insulated properly, get our furnaces up to speed, and then uh, also see how many windows we can do. But um, uh, we just thank you for that. And I thank you for the sharing this. And in sharing in this, every dollar helps us, every loony, every toony. Um, I figured it out. On this roof, it costs $16 a shingle with the insulation underneath it and all the work and demo and all that teared off. So how many shingles are you in for? 16 bucks. How many shingles covers you when you come in here? But I just thank you so much. This is 26 people. We've raised two, uh, 5,225. That's about $200 a person so far. So it's, it's amazing. And we thank people because it's above and beyond our normal giving. If we put all of our resources into this without our, um, our, our um, uh, continued support for our program, we're not here. So I thank you so much because this, this is people stepping up and beyond what they normally give. And so appreciated. But... I'm going to share this with you each week as it increases, and I fully expect by the end of September when we're going to start this work, we've got a uh, couple of roofers finalizing bids for us right now, we're going to get going on it. We've got plumbers lined up to do our furnaces and our hot water heaters and, and get everything uh, um, put together that uh, is important. So I just want to show, share with you what we can do together, because we need one another. We need one another's help on this. We need, we need co-pilots. We need people that are studying technology that can build better pipelines. One of the big controversies about the Keystone Pipeline. Or, or, or oil rigs in the Gulf of Mexico. Or the technology or the financial institutions. You know, all the things that have happened with the meltdown. But we need one another guidance and, and, and diligence and stewardship on those things. It's just we're so much better off with the ideas. So I just thank you with that. And as we do our offering today, there's some envelopes there for you that say CSFL New Roof Fund. If, if you can do something great today, if not... Uh, thank you for supporting us in consciousness. There's also the GoFundMe on, on Facebook. But we're going to get there, no doubt. And I, I thank you so much for your, your uh, support. And now I'm going to let Mitch and Mallory and the gang uh, play another song for us, and then we'll do our offering. So thank you. Blessings. <laughs> 